Welcome to Cureleaf, a medical marijuana dispensary. Whether you're a longtime patient or you're just getting acquainted with this incredible plant, Cureleaf of Pennsylvania is honored to guide you along your medical marijuana journey. Visit us soon at our new State College location. This is the Blue White Breakdown. The premier podcast for all things Penn State football. Talk about culture. It's something that should show up in every aspect of your program. It's the Blue White Breakdown. Brought to you by Penn Live. Here are your hosts, Bob Flounders and David Jones. And it's another edition of the Blue White Breakdown. And we just keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. I've lined up one superstar guest after another in May, June, and July. We kick off July with none other than Penn Stater and New York Yankees play-by-play man. <laughs> so we don't have to listen to, yeah, 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 Yankees win. No, no, that was just for one day. I'm holding the chair for John Sterling, and don't you dare kick him out a day early. He's Sweeney Murdy, uh, our old buddy. Jeez, I mean, uh, it's it seems like just yesterday that uh, – you were a Penn Stater and we were hanging out in, in Times Square watching NIT games. And for the first time, because he's part of the enemy camp, uh, our sports manager, Chris Hopkins, is with us. And he's going to kind of take the reins on this because he <laughs> loves the Yankees. He really loves the Yankees. I don't understand it, but he does. I, uh, yeah, so again, Chris, take it away. Same thing Sweeney said, dude, I'm not kicking Bob out of the chair just yet. Bob will be back next week. <laughs> That's it. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm filling in for a week. But, yeah, uh, Sweeney, thanks for joining us. You mentioned uh, filling in the play-by-play role for the Yankees. I mean, John Sterling's been doing it forever. How was that, getting to do play-by-play for the New York Yankees? Had to be pretty cool. Yeah, it was phenomenal. You know, I got to listen. I mean, for those who don't know, my role at the radio station has been as a reporter and an anchor and a, and a host. And for the last 20 plus years of, of our Yankees coverage and getting the chance to do play by play is a completely different thing. I, I talked to a lot of people about like, listen, I grew up in Middletown, right? And my ambitions when I started at WMSS when I was just a teenager were to be the next Harry Callis or, uh, or the next or the next John Wilsbach. Yeah, exactly. I'm still I'm still striving for that. I haven't reached John Pattis yet. I, I hope to get there one day. Taught me everything I know. But as, as John and I were getting through this, like I wanted to be Harry Callis. Well, listen, you get through high school, you get through college, you get through the first few years of your career, and you realize that Harry Callis is still holding the job you want, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that kind of thing is what everybody who wants to be a play-by-play announcer is fighting. You get to the point where you're ready for these jobs and the people will have them are one, really good at them, and two, love them so much, they're not leaving. So you better find some other avenue, some other path. And the media landscape's opened up a lot in the last several years for people. Um, and I found my route as, you know, as a as an anchor and a reporter. And so I've been covering the Yankees, getting to actually call a Yankees game for the first time. Well, I, I, I described it as, you know, getting the chance to fly the space shuttle. And my <laughs> only job was, to, and apropos because the game was in Houston, but uh, my only job was to bring it back safely to earth without too many dings and dents in it and i think i accomplished that we're in in houston where harry callis began that's right that's right and his son todd todd's one of the is the tv uh, voice of the astros i don't even think you were alive then um i i I swore i was going to let chris have this but this is i'm very interested in this because I, i i looked up an old story the other day about it happened to be about um chris fowler and kirk herbstreet when they did a Monday night game last year, you remember that? Mm-hmm. Because they had two on Monday night, so mm-hmm. they gave them one. 
This was during the era of Joe Tessitore, who is urgent all the time. Everything is the most important thing that's ever happened. And he's just not a comfortable voice. This is my opinion. I'm putting words in your mouth. But in your opinion, and, and I mentioned Harry Callis, um, because he was such a comfortable voice in mm-hmm. a game that's a marathon, man. It's not, it's not, it's not a sprint. And I think you need that. Uh, do you have any opinions about that? Have you thought about that? I'm sure you have. I mean, it's such a subjective field that we're in, right? And I said to somebody last week, I said, you know, listen, I don't have a great deep voice, the classic Harry right. Callis or John Sterling or anybody right. else. But the subjective part of it is. If you go into this not liking the sound of my voice or whoever the announcer is, it's really not going to matter what we're saying. You've already decided you don't like what we're what we're doing, what we're saying, <laughs> right? The sound of the voice is everything. It is everything. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that is where all the critiques begin, and that is entirely subjective. Uh, beyond that, it's the ability to call a game and describe the action and all the other things that we, you know, who and Han get all, you know, all up in a bunch about, or, you know, it's really just, uh, it can be a lot of nonsense. Okay. Can you describe the action as it's happening? Do people know what's going on as they're listening? I tried to get some of that across and I had a few flubs, you know, I fumbled a few times and missed a couple of things, but I think I did it as well as somebody who who is doing it for the first time on that stage could probably ask for it. I think I'm going to get another chance to maybe do it again sometime, but I'm not in my thirties and have this ambition anymore of, Oh, this is going to be my future. I had, you know, John Sterling's cutting back some of his road travel. And I asked the people at the radio station, if I could get a game or two or whatever, and they gave me one and they gave me one on my 52nd birthday. I mean, they couldn't have given me a better present. Right. So I wasn't going and looking at this as like, this is, this is a career jumping point. I just wanted to have fun. And I wanted the people listening to feel like they had fun with me. And I, and I hope that came across. I, I think you always have, man. And that's why people used to listen to you years and years ago with Francesa going through the lineup. You guys could go through the lineup. And that was fun. Interesting, yeah. You know, you go Damon, Swisha, Cano, Jita, Posada, Metsui. <laughs> And, and and get your bounce off all your reactions to what was going on that day. I, anyway, I'm babbling. Go ahead, Chris. No, uh, well, you, well, you talked about, you know, you wanted to be the next Harry Callis and all that stuff. You've been at the fans since... When, when this, is my, this is my 30th year. I, I interned there in 91, but I was hired there in 93. Uh, I made the jump. I was working at WHP in Harrisburg and Radio Pennsylvania Network. I made the jump from there in the March of 93. So this is, this is my 30th year there. To start, you're doing a lot of behind the scenes stuff, you know, I I think producing board ops, all that sort of stuff. What led you get into the role of beat reporter then for the Yankees? Was it was it right after Susan left from that role? Yeah, it kind of coincided with that. Uh, you're right, Jonesy. He knows everything about this. You know, <laughs> it's it's kind of freaky, and I, I don't I, want I, you to be scared off. But, no, you know, he's, he's, he's going to show up at my house tomorrow, and I'm going to be gonna really start doing. He's going to start doing Chris Farley questions pretty soon. I know he's got <laughs> dirt on me from like junior high and high school. Like I know, I know where this is coming from. So you remember that ahead. time you interviewed Jeter? That yeah, was, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I came here to, I took a job as a producer. I left my on-air stuff in Pennsylvania to take a job as a producer. I did that because it was at WFAN. It was a full-time job at WFAN. I said, let's let's just get in the door here and go. 
And I was committed to being a producer, you know, and then after a few years, you know, you say, is, it, is this really all I'm going to make being a producer? Like, how am I going to get through this? What, you know, what's what's next? What's going to happen next? I did it for for a while. And in the summer of 96, I got a chance to uh, be part of the production crew for Westwood One's coverage of the 96 Summer Olympics in Atlanta. And when I was there, I worked with some of the best announcers from all over the country. Um, some of the best sports anchors, play-by-play people from everywhere and talk shows uh, from, from all over the country on the national coverage of the Summer Olympics. And after working with them for three weeks and kind of helping craft their stuff and, and doing the production stuff in the, in the studio, in the newsroom, I walked away from that thinking, you know, I can do this as well as they can. I'm not I wasn't saying I'm better than them. I'm this now. I'm saying you, you kind of expect a network level in your head. It's just built up to something different. And I walked away from it going, you know what? I'm confident enough. I'm good enough. I can do what these guys are doing. And so that led me to try to get on air. I, I got my first full-time on-air crack at WIP in Philadelphia. I went there in basically from June or July of 97 to June or July of 98. I, it was 12 months before I moved back to FAN to take another full-time on-air job. You know, that's how quickly I was able to make the jump. And then summer of 2000, Westwood One, I was back at the Summer Olympics coverage in Sydney, this time as an on-air anchor and a reporter. So I'd made the jump over the course of those four years. And then, Chris, what you're talking about is after the 2000 season, Susan Waldman made the jump from being the Yankees beer reporter on our station to a talk show host on our station. And I took over the Yankees beat starting the 2001 season. Susan eventually went to the yes network job as a clubhouse reporter. And then to the Yankees broadcast where she's been since 2005 as the color analyst to John Sterling. And I've been in my role since 2001. Resisting here doing my Susan Wallman. In person. Please. Yes. Not here. <laughs> I'm going to do it. Unless you're going to do it very respectfully. Don't do it. <laughs> That's good. But I feel like being a beat reporter for a radio station is very different than, say, the New York Times or the Post or anything, a, a newspaper reporter. What all goes into being a beat reporter for the Yankees for a radio station, you know, as opposed to a newspaper. And do you prefer that than, you know, the stuff that the newspaper guys are doing? I've never written as a, you know, as a beat reporter, I've never like uh, written as a, as a, on a regular, like I like to write things, but I've never written as a regular job for a newspaper or website. It's just things. Occasionally I have written things. I can't tell you like, prefer one way or the other. Um, you know, the difference is you're talking about it and it's, it can be a little bit more subjective. I think sometimes opinionated because you're, you know, you're in a talk show format as opposed to trying to fit everything into your story and passing it through, you know, a couple of different editors before it hits, uh, hits the public. But I got into this, this debate one time years ago with another guy who, who was claiming to me that, you know, our job is harder than yours. You know, the, the print beat reporter is harder than yours. And, you know, my claim was, I'm not trying to tell you that one's harder than the other, but they're different. You know, listen, you can hit backspace. You can uh, you can you can highlight a paragraph that you don't didn't like and just delete it altogether. Once it's out of my mouth, it's out of my mouth. Okay. And that's out there. So I think there are challenges to the whole thing on both sides. Listen, really, I think the biggest challenge for all of it is having the ability to try to come across as a credible voice or a credible writer. So the fact that the fans who are consuming all this stuff 
will take it seriously and will want to keep coming back for more because they believe that they believe whatever authority you are speaking or writing about is credible enough and has enough interest to them to keep coming back for more. And, and there are different technical things about each job that make them different and challenging in their own way. So I, I, I don't really like to compare them. I can't say that I've done the other one. I probably struggle at it because, you know, trying to crank out, you know, a thousand words in 15 minutes on a deadline sounds pretty challenging, but, you know, just going on the air right away and, and breaking it all down and making it all make sense without any mistakes or that's, that's challenging in its own right too. I have had, actually had arguments with print guys about, about exactly this because I used to cover television and radio and I understand what it is and how hard it is to make seamless thoughts without ums and uhs. And in real time, it's not easy, not to mention reporting. And I've always maintained, and people, a lot of people disagree with me good because she, they just don't happen to like her, which has nothing to do with it, that Erin Andrews is, is a really good sideline reporter because she finds stuff out, she gets it on the air, and she is seamless in her delivery. And that is not easy, man, in real time. No, and I think another part of it is simply just like how we get... I mean, you mentioned talking to Francesa, right? Like I go on the air, I, I would go on the yard, call into the Mike and the Mad Dog show or Mike Francesa's show. I don't have a list of the questions they're going to ask me. I don't, I don't, I have no idea what they're going to ask me. I mean, I know that, you know, we're not going off topic into, you know, foreign policy of, you know, the presidential administration. We're, you know, we're still talking about the Yankees. Plus you, plus you have to understand that accent of his, which is, <laughs> you have to understand what the hell he's saying too. So that's hard. So I have questions being fired at me and, you know, you don't have time to say, you know, I'm going to go look that up. Hold on a second. You know, it's, it's 520 in the afternoon in New York. It's drive time, right? I have to come with an, with not just an answer, but I have to come with an answer that is informed, that has some sort of knowledge and opinion and passion behind it to the point where it's also an interesting discussion for people to want to follow and listen to. And it better be factual, right? I better have something right. If they ask me a question, I don't know the answer to, I have to figure out quickly how to get that answer or at least talk around it to the point where I can give you something without, you know, having the ability to go look up. That, that is, want. that is, a, and that is a learned skill. Is it not? I mean, you didn't know that right away. It had to talk around something. He must've yeah. stumped you at some point where you had I, to talk around an issue, but you have to be seamless. You can't mm -hmm. be, you can't have dead air on the radio. Correct. And, you know, and that's, and listen, sometimes it comes across that way, but if I've done it right, the majority of people aren't going to know that I didn't know the answer or didn't have the answer or was stalling or doing whatever. It, it comes across differently sometimes, but yeah, it's, it's something that the more you do, it's, it's like anything else, the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. And I, you know, I mean, you guys probably the first time you tried to, you know, game ended at whatever, 11 o'clock at night and you had to crank something out on deadline. It, it, you know, the first time it probably felt like you're trying to put out a fire. Right. But as things get going, it gets a little bit easier. I know the time crunch is always the time crunch, but I'm sure that you have confidence in your own ability to say, okay, I now have 20 minutes to do this. Bam, I'm ready to go. That, that's, I, that really is what it is. Because yeah. when you're a kid and you're on deadline and you got, you got 20 minutes, a lot of times you're panicking. You're yeah. thinking, you're thinking, well, how am I going to do this? How, instead of just having the confidence to know that I can, I can do this. I've done it before. I'm sure it's the same in broadcasting. 
I, a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, you just have to know that, you know, the, I mean, the light comes on, you know, you're going to know, like I've done TV hits and those are a little bit different because they do many times give you, okay, here's the three or four topics that we're going to ask you about. And you have time in your head to prepare over it. The radio segments much more looser and, you know, much, you know, much more informal. And it's really just meant to be a conversation. But from my end, I'm the reporter. I'm not just bringing my opinions and whatever to the, to the show. I have to bring facts to the show and I have to have some sort of base knowledge about it and have the ability to, you know, kind of on the fly, find things uh, within the arguments that, you know, that we're talking about. This is the Blue White Breakdown. Welcome to Cureleaf, a medical marijuana dispensary. Whether you're a longtime patient or you're just getting acquainted with this incredible plant, Cureleaf of Pennsylvania is honored to guide you along your medical marijuana journey. Have questions? Visit us at cureleaf.com or stop in to see us at any of our locations, including our new state college dispensary located at 1248 South Atherton Street. Let's talk medical marijuana and let our confidence become yours. All right, we get, are we going to talk about the Yankees? I guess we have to. Yeah, don't we? I, well, I've, I, I have to ask about the Yankees. Dave mentioned I'm a Yankees fan, but I'll be honest, I've been listening to the fan probably even longer than I've been rooting for the Yankees. So oh, I, I, I know. I've been told all about you, Chris. All good. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just go get some coffee. Uh, but real quick, true or false, Aaron Judge re-signs with the Yankees this offseason. I mean, I, I got to think, yeah, it happens. I mean, why why, why wouldn't it, right? You, it's just about trying to figure out the numbers, and there was a long way to go there. It, it makes too much sense. Listen, the closer you get to it, the closer. But I don't – but it's always – remember, the player has the choice. You know, right. the, and, it, and if there's something within him or his family or whatever that is important to him to go someplace else, whether that's closer like to California, California or something, right. You, know, you can't compete against that. You make your best effort, and that's really all you're in control of. Brian Cashman always says free agency means free choice. Aaron Judge only has to look to the locker next to him and see Giancarlo Stanton. Giancarlo Stanton came to New York with a very accomplished history in Miami. When he came to New York, he started at zero. He had a huge contract, and he hadn't hit one single home run for the New York Yankees yet. And that's what follows you when you sign a big free agent contract somewhere else. You know, everything you accomplish goes out the door. All you are is somebody who's playing his first game in that uniform and is drawing a really big salary. So you better produce. You know, that's why you talk about the the guys who are there for their whole careers, the legacy kind of guys, well, they have, they have some bank with their fan base. And that's what Aaron judge has with the Yankees. So that is always going to be in his back pocket here. And it won't be if he eventually decides, should he decide to go somewhere else? You know, you've always hear the narrative, the Yankees take care of other teams players before their own. I mean, we saw it with Cano and they went and paid Jacoby Ellsbury and, I could see somebody in a team like the Giants or the Angels just throwing a, a boatload of money at him and maybe the Yankees just balking at that. So Oh, no. They'll have to buy somebody else. That's horrible. What a horrible thought. Yeah. You know, there are there are very few people the Yankees ever let go that they really wanted to keep. <laughs> you know, Cano's an interesting one because they basically did give his money to Jacoby Ellsbury. They were willing to go, but they were willing to go seven for 175. That would have been a pretty good deal for Cano. He ended up getting 10 for 240, which in the end was an awful deal. You know, for it was great for him, but awful for the team. Right. They drew their line right there. And did they, you know, could they foresee what was going to happen? I don't know. Did they have some sort of inkling? I, I don't know. But there are very few people that they ever really wanted to keep or let go of in their prime 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, Judge is right there. He, he's right in that category that we're talking about. And notice on your wall there, it looks like an autographed Chuck Burkhart jersey. No, I'm just kidding. It's <laughs> it's it's an Evan Royster jersey. No, I'm still kidding. That's probably John Capaletti, right? Is it is indeed. That? John Capaletti, yeah. As a, as a wedding present from uh, from my best man, Sean Smith. And uh, I got it nicely framed up there. And as I, as I figure it, you went into... Underneath, stop. let me just say, underneath, this is yeah. Greg Garrity and DJ Dozier after their touchdowns in the championship game the picture the greg garrity is a sports illustrated cover dj dozier is just a picture of him but you didn't go to school they're there. both signed you didn't go to school during either of these eras you went to school during the tony saka era yes yes football, exactly right, right. tony right? and i are in the exact same class yep yes yes, yes. there's a ken denlinger uh wrote a wonderful book about the recruiting class yeah for the glory great book about uh, about that recruiting class i just wasn't recruited to play football it was just but it was my it was my group my class um this, yeah 88 to 92 was my was my turn now that was a very odd time and yet what do you remember about the the 91 team was really your senior year a really really good team that's forgotten finished third in in the nation that year yeah and were it not for this abortive trip out to Southern California, which was the last press box that I smoked in. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's because you decided to quit, not because well, they stopped quit, allowing I you to do some, it. I quit at some point after that, but you could oh, smoke good. in the L.A. Coliseum press box. Yes. That was. They won 10 straight, 11 straight to finish the year, I yeah, think. They, 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 they played this incredible game in the Orange Bowl, which was like the surface of Mercury. Right. And yeah. Sack actually played a really brave game. That yeah. what do you remember that game, a 26-20 game? I I do. What I what I remember about it the most was in all that heat and intensity, Saka gets pinned for what happened on the final drive when he threw an incomplete pass to the end zone, I think on the final play. But there was green grass in front of him, and he could have run for a first down to extend. I think he was exhausted. Down. I remember that. That's exactly yeah. what he said. And and like he said after at that point, he said, "I was too, you know, I was too tired." And the rest <laughs> of us, you know, who who have never played three hours of football in Miami, say, "What do you mean you're too tired?" Yeah, I know, well, I know. And they have well, no idea. No, no. And listen, but Jonesy, I've talked to people on that team who thought the same thing I did at the time. They're like, like, what you, even if it's true, you can't say it. Right. It was a hard thing. He was honest in that moment where it was an exhausting uh, day and performance and there wasn't enough left in if the tank. You had, Sweeney, if you'd yeah. been there, you yeah. would have totally gotten it. And yeah. I did. But because that is probably the hottest weather I've ever seen a football game played in. And mm-hmm. it was insane. And that's the, that is going to be the national champion, that 91 Miami team. Yeah, they're, well, they're the winner win the in Miami ended up going to yeah, win the national yeah. championship, and they played him down to the the end. Plus, yeah. Penn State got kind of got screwed on what should have been a safety with a ball intercepted and then run back into the end zone. Anyway, that was a that was a really good and interesting team, and I always thought Tony Saka got the the short end of the ship there. But what, any other well, memories it, about? But Notre- he ended up beating Notre Dame that year, like in, in a really convincing game. Because the year before was the one where they went to South Bend and won the game on Craig Fayak's field goal in 90. And then in 91, they destroyed Notre Dame at home uh, in State College uh, and really convincing. I mean, Tony Sacco at that 
point in in that those couple of games toward the end of the 91 season was everything he was supposed to be. beat up uh Ty Detmer on a really good BYU team too on a Saturday night game but yeah I remember that I, I, I believe that was a 9 30 start when ESPN was, was it that late oh wow I was yeah, I was yeah, young they were allowed and to do stay up, I could easily and stay what, what else do you remember about being a Penn State undergrad in those days and going to football games that I didn't go to a lot of football games. Really? What I did was I worked that BYU game I went to. But what I did is I worked at WRSC and I used to spend Jerry Fisher was a sports director there and I was his <laughs> assistant. And I used to work every Friday night during the high school football season in the studio yeah. uh, doing scoreboard updates. And I used to work every Saturday during the football season in the studio, working on our pregame shows and our postgame shows, cutting highlights. I'd read scores on the FM 97 quick. You know, I did a lot of the stuff that, you know, that we do in our newsroom at FAN. And I was and when I went there to learn these things, like I'd already been doing a lot of these things. So I was on the ground doing what I do. You know, I gave up. I tell people all the time who want to get into into the business. I said, just, you know, they ask about sacrifices. I said, well, just think of it this way. Sports happen. When do sports happen? Sports happen at nights and on weekends. If you want to be in this business, you're going to sacrifice your nights and your weekends. Not only that, but but if you like ice cream, okay, you're going to work in an ice cream shop now. And you're going to get ice cream all the time. So be ready for it. You better love ice cream. Correct. And like the idea to me was that, okay, I had a goal and, you know, I, I, I was willing. Listen, what 19, 20, 21 year old wants to give up Friday nights and Saturdays, you know, in college, nobody. Right. But I I mean, I, and I had fun otherwise. Don't, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I, I managed to do the other stuff too. (laughs) I, I was focused on what I was doing. This was this was career job training here, and I you know I made sure that I followed through. And I got a great opportunity with Jerry and uh, Scott Geezy was uh, was hosting uh, Sports Line with Phil wow. Gross. Scott Geezy, uh, yeah, I mean, past, yeah. So I was listen. I had a great opportunity there. That John Wilsbach actually got me in the door there because he used to work with Scott at WSBA. Those guys gave me a lot of freedom to do some things. They 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 thought that I was good enough to handle different things, and they really got me moving in the right direction. I, I got to bring this. Uh, I got to bring this up to date because I want your perspective on stuff that's going on now in Penn State football. And of course, the big story now is USC and UCLA, and what really looks like a broadcasting-driven move. Mm-hmm. are going to join the Big Ten. Any thoughts about this just in general? Would you have ever dreamed when you got in this business like something something like this could happen? Because you got in right when Penn State was joining the Big Ten, which seemed like a, a, a incredible monumental event at, the, at that time. Nothing like yeah. this. It was a huge move. And I think it was – I can't remember. Like I think my- – I wonder, did Miami and Florida State move before Penn State did or Penn State? No, they moved after it. And I talked to Gene Corrigan uh, back in 2007 because I'd always heard Jim Tarman told me Mm -hmm. when I I wrote a retrospective in 94 about them getting into the league. And Stan Eikenberry told me that it was not a unanimous vote at all. And it was very close. It was seven to three. Last year, I did a story on just how close it was. And Gene Corrigan told me in between that they were he was mad. He was the ACC commissioner that they were asleep at the wheel. They didn't know Penn State wanted to be in a league or they would have had him in in a second. And he called Harmon the next day and said, why didn't you tell us? We would have been in a heartbeat. So he convened a meeting uh, of his uh, presidents 
in athletic directors the next week. And that's when the Florida state thing happened. Okay. I remember sketching this out for a show at one point and thinking, okay, here's my salute. I think I did a show on like a new year's Eve, like before the bowl game. So I like, I made college football, my theme and I, and I sketched out on a big yellow notepad. These are my, uh, I think I call it like six super conferences, right. Or eight Mm -hmm. super, like eight super conferences. And like, this is how you get a championship of eight teams because you get these eight teams. And like, I, 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 I think you, I did it into divisions where I was kind of ahead of my time, Jonesy. I did it into divisions. This sounds pretty geeky, sweetie. I said, yeah, totally. I said, was it also color coded? Yeah. (laughs) I said, all right, here it is. You win your division, you play for the conference championship, and then you move to the champ to the title uh, tournament. That's it. There's no wild cards. There's no this or that. And like, you're kind of moving in this kind of direction, right? It's, I mean, we all used to say, Jonesy, how many times did you hear people say, oh, it'll never work. The Bulls have too much power at TV. They need this. They need that. Well, we've slowly been moving. It's been a continental drift towards this playoff thing that we all knew was good for us all 30 years ago. I don't know enough about the details now. See how fast and furious it's all moving. But I mean, I got to believe we're getting to that point where it's, you know, it's eight teams. It's. 12, 16, pick the number. We're going to get there soon, I would think. And bowls are going to be really just playoff games. They're, mm-hmm. If, if yeah. the Rose Bowl is reduced to nothing but a playoff venue, then you know the times have changed. Chris, do you want to wrap this up with another uh, Yankees question? Or you, <laughs> you, you do what you like here. I've said enough. All right. Last one I'll give to you. Just uh, anything that you could share. Give me your favorite, either just WFAN story, working with Mike and the Mad Dog, any (laughs) anything from there. Just just a favorite story that you have from your however many years you've been there. It's got to be when Roger Clemens was in George's box. Stop it. Stop (laughs) it right now. I shared this story the other day during our 35th anniversary stuff. Right. Mike and the Mad Dog are broadcasting from the Green Monster seats at Fenway before a late season Yankees Red Sox game. It's the final weekend of the 2005 season. Both teams are tied for first place. Huge series, three games to go. They're broadcasting from the Monster seats, and it's about six o'clock when I go up there to be on their show, do the Q and A thing, like we talked about earlier in the show, right? And the gates have been open, so fans are flowing in. So the crowd's really swelling up around you now. There's lots of and there's lots of ambient uh, Fenway Park noise around you as we're talking. It's uh, batting practices going on. It's really getting you know juiced up. I, I forget what one of them asked me a question, and I'm here. Chris is on this side of me on my left. Mike is on the side of me on my right. We're facing the field, sitting in the green monster seats. And as I'm talking, Mike just takes his headsets off and starts talking to somebody who would just come up in the crowd to start talking to him. I'm like, okay, well, that's odd. Jonesy, this is like what we we're talking about earlier, but you got to kind of keep going and, and kind of, you know, free flow, right? So I turn to my left and start talking to directly to Chris, looking at him. He's not looking at me. He's looking over my shoulder. He's looking and he's like glassy eyed. Like I could, he's not listening to a word I'm saying. Okay. I'm sitting here saying, this is amazing. I'm sitting here talking about, you know, I'm right now hosting the Mike and the Mad Dog show because Mike is disengaged. Chris is like, uh, you know, in a, in a catatonic state. I'm hosting Mike and the Mad Dog from the Fenway, from the Green Monster seats of Fenway. Well, as I finished whatever dumb point I was making about, you know, about Derek Jeter or Jason Giambi or Tim Wakefield or David Ortiz or whatever, 
Mike puts his headset back, back on and he and Chris start talking about how cool it was that Robert Redford just came up to say hi. <laughs> I was trying to guess who it was. And I'm like, John Candy. Uh, like, really, Williams, yeah. like Roy Hobbs, the Sundance kid just walked up next to me and I was blathering on about how they're going to pitch to Manny Ramirez. What? <laughs> That's great. Did, did Mike say that he makes the game better? That makes that makes it the game better for the fans. I can't wait until I figure out how to do a Jones accent and impression. I want to come. I want to, Chris. We're going to come back on that once I figure that out. Hey man, this is this has yeah. been a blast. This has been a blast. We could do this for a couple hours anyway. Sweet. We'll have you back on some other time. All right. We, we love yeah. the fact that you're having such success because you you deserve it. You're one of the good guys in the business. Plus, really good at what you do. So uh, thanks for being on, and maybe we'll get to a little Penn State talk next time. Or thanks, Jonesy. I appreciate yeah. you, man. Chris, thanks for having me. Thanks for being Thank such a big fan, man. I, you know, I I hear all the war stories. So thanks for uh, always listening. Pay attention. Appreciate it. Absolutely. This has been the Blue White Breakdown, brought to you by Penn Live.